As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Didn't your conference just end? Shouldn't you be like, you know, taking a break on the beach or something? I don't know what beach you're talking about, but there's definitely no breaks going on here. No, and in all seriousness, yes, industry, it's been over a month now, so that's kind of crazy. But we just announced details for industry 2019 taking place next September. So there's definitely no break. Amazing. Um, But Yes, we're we're pumped for it. We got actually Jason Freed of Basecamp will be coming back. So I am really excited about that. Um, and yeah, I mean, before that, we've got Industry Europe in April in Dublin, Ireland. And we're really ramping up things with Product Collective. Um, we actually just surpassed 6,000 product people in our Slack group. That is awesome. And, and what's been going on on your end? Well, um, you know, 2018 is wrapping up. Um, work at Dribble is going really well. We are growing um, almost 100% year over year. 
And then this podcast, I'm, I'm definitely thinking ahead to 2019 where I think we're trying to figure out what the future is going to be. For sure. For sure. And I feel like, you know, a lot of product people are in that mode right now. And that's a good thing because the interview that we're releasing right here, right now, in a way, it's kind of all about product people thinking about the future, not necessarily for their products, but for themselves. I think that works out perfectly. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. So you say that today's episode is about a product person's future. Well, in a way, yes, because this episode is going to focus on a chat that I recently had with Jackie Bavaro, the head of product at Asana. Okay, but given how you've teased this, I bet your conversation had more to do with the book that she wrote, Cracking the PM Interview, than her day-to-day at Asana? (laughs) That it is true. I mean, her work at Asana and even beforehand, she's definitely done her share of hiring and interviewing. and, And of course, she's had her own experiences interviewing for PM roles, but she shared all of that in this book that she wrote. And my conversation with her was all about product people and the processes that those product people go through to find an interview for PM roles. Well, that is definitely a relevant topic. Everybody wants to make sure their career is heading down the right track. And, you know, that could be landing the next big PM role. Or even your first PM role, right? Yeah, yeah, that too. It's all very important. And it's a whole different skill set interviewing versus actually doing the work. So before we get to the heart of it, it's probably good to get a sense of how Jackie came to write the book in the first place, how her experience led her to having, you know, all these insights. Of course. Well, here's Jackie going back a bit. Before Asana, I worked at Google for three years and before that at Microsoft for three years. Um, And I actually became a PM right out of school. So I had internships at Microsoft um, over the summer. And through that experience, I started to feel like I was really, really lucky to have discovered product management. At the time, I it wasn't a very well-known job, and I didn't think I would have stumbled upon it, except for the fact that I had a friend who told me that I really should do it. So once I became a PM and then started interviewing for people for PMs, I started to notice some things. I started to notice that some people interviewed really well and some people interviewed very poorly and that it wasn't necessarily correlated to how good their ideas were or how, how good I think they would be at the job, but rather just because of some, some basic preparation steps, just because of adding a little bit of structure to the way they're talking about things and just because they, they seem to more understand what the questions we're getting at. And because I love this job so much and because I think product managers are so important to creating good products in the world, I wanted to level the playing field and open the product management role up to more people, to people who, um, without without a little bit of extra advice, wouldn't wouldn't have a fair shot at getting the job. Um, and this is especially important to me because a lot of people interviewing for PMs were actually asking a friend of a friend for advice on the role. So. If you're going in as somebody who's never heard of the job before, you're you're sort of starting from a disadvantage from someone who has a friend who's already a PM who can tell you a little bit about, about how to do well on the interview. So I started writing, I started blogging about it, and then I met up with uh, Gail, who's my co-author, and she'd already written Cracking the Coding Interview, which is the best-selling interview book on Amazon, um, a really excellent resource for learning how to become an engineer. And we partnered up and wrote Cracking the PM Interview, and that's uh, that's how it, how it happened. So that's how it all came about. And 
I'm sure a lot of product people are glad that she did write this book so that this resource exists. Yeah. Well, let's face it, the product manager role, it's it's a murky one. Until very recently, you couldn't even go to school for product management. So interviewing for a product role, it just it's just hard, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely for sure. And actually, Jackie touches up on this point specifically. Interviews in general are hard. So whether it's for product manager or an engineer or marketing, um, it's really hard to get a sense of how effective someone's going to be at a job just from an interview over a few hours or even a take-home assessment. And so what happens is that companies end up being pretty risk-averse is they are... They're going to say no to candidates who they know might have been really excellent at the job um, because they they don't want to take the risk that something might not work out. And also, you have to make a great impression on a really large number of people. And it's, um, I find that it's really easy for there to be small miscommunications or mistaken assumptions, and those can send an interview entirely off course. So... Um, so one of the things that I noticed when I was starting to, when I was interviewing people and when I was doing research for the book is that the interviewers have a very clear idea of what kind of signal they're looking for. Um, so for example, at Google, I would go in and I'd be told, you have the product hat today, you need to test for product skills, or you have the analytical hat today, you need to go in and test for analytical skills. And so I had I had a really clear idea and a rubric in my mind of what kinds of things I'm looking for. But a lot of the questions that you ask um, can almost sound like trick questions if you don't understand what the uh, what the intention behind them is. So um, I remember a question I was asked um, really early on was like, design a bathroom. <laughs> and I somehow, I interpreted it, I really had no experience as a PM, I interpreted it as like, what would you like in a bathroom? And I was like, oh, I think I'd like this, and this would be cool, and I'd like that. And I, I didn't really understand that the question was actually not asking, what do you what do you think a good bathroom has, or what would you personally want in a bathroom? But rather, like, really high level, how would you even decide what makes a bathroom good or not? And then, based on your definition of what makes a bathroom good or not, what kinds of of things would make it actually meet that that definition of good, and so because because it's not a commonly known th- known skill because you're not being taught it in school, there's a there's a there's a real chance for people to misinterpret the questions and then not answer them the way that the uh, interviewer like was really looking for. So let's start at the very beginning. Before somebody can find their next product role, they have to have their first product role. So we should probably start there. I think starting there is a great place, finding that first PM role. Do you remember how you got your first PM role? I definitely remember that. I I was just coming off of my startup, eFuneral, a startup that for all intents and purposes failed. I mean, we sold it, but I was called a fail sale. And I was finishing up that transaction, putting out, you know, kind of feelers that was looking for my next role. And a couple of people that were here in town in Cleveland had reached out to me about product roles they were trying to recruit for. And I imagine that path from being a startup founder to a product person, it's not completely uncommon. No, I don't think so. I mean, I've definitely run into others that have landed their first product role that way. I wouldn't say it's the majority, but it's definitely not completely uncommon. So what are the more common paths uh, that somebody lands their first product role? Well, here's Jackie, at least with her perspective on that. There's really two main ways that people get their first PM job. Um, the first is you get it by applying to APM programs as a new grad. 
So if you've got like a computer science background and they um, and big companies recruit at your school, you can apply that way and get in with no PM experience at all. Um, if you don't get in that way, the I would say like 90% of the rest of people who actually become PMs get it by in their current company and current role, they just start doing the PM job and they do it until they're officially recognized for it. So I talk to the person again and again and again, and this is by far the common thread is that it doesn't matter if their job was customer support or operations or engineering. Um, they, in addition to doing their main job, started picking up pieces of the PM job. They saw that there was a need at their company. They, they looked for, for a hole and they, and they started to fill it. And um, sometimes this is that they became the PM on an internal tool and they, they grew it and, um, and built it until it was something that the rest of the company took notice of and then turned that internal tool into a real PM job. Or sometimes they um, were customer support, they saw an idea, they saw a whole bunch of customer tickets about the same problem and they're like, I think I can fix this. Um, and then started writing up designs for how, to, how it could be better. Um, I've even heard of this coming from technical writers, uh, someone who was writing up the documentation on how to uh, how to use the product. And they were like, this would be so much easier to explain if we just change the product around to work this way and, and started sharing those ideas. And that's how they, they got into PMing. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices, construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Now, back to the show. So there's the right out of college route, but then the other most common role is sort of falling into the role from a company um, where you've already been working in a, I guess, a different discipline. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I have to admit, I bet that that ladder, like what you just described, that's probably the most popular, at least in my experience, that kind of rings true. Yeah, it's certainly it could be right. But if you're in college and you're trying to apply for that product role, I'm sure you'd be itching to know what are those companies looking for? Yes. And I happen to be teaching an undergraduate class at Case Western Reserve University I'm on product management. So if you guys are listening, hello there. I uh, hope that you're enjoying the podcast. But anyway, a couple of my students, they're actively applying for entry level product roles right now. So does Jackie have some intel for them on what companies are looking for? Oh, she sure does. Companies are looking for a track record of excellence. That means that when companies are looking at resumes of people who have never been PMs before, they want to see, does this person show, has this person shown in their past that they can do really amazing things? And those things can be entirely outside the realm of product management. Um, some examples here are, were you on a varsity team in college? Did you, were you a residential advisor? Did you, were you the president of a club? Did you, do you have, did you found a startup? Um, do you have a really interesting side project where you were a leader? Um, there's also the traditional stuff like getting great grades can really matter. If you got great grades at a great school um, and you were in a difficult major, that can be enough to get your resume looked at. But when you don't have those, that's when you really want to add in other things that show that you've done excellence in your past. And 
What about when you're out of college? You mentioned how, at least in your experience, you notice that most of the people land their first product role. It's not like they came right out of college. So for those that are already in the workplace, but maybe they're in customer support, business development, or engineering elsewhere, what do companies look for in these individuals to make the transition into product? Well, they might be looking for some of the same things that they look for in those college grads, right? I mean, I'm sure they're still looking for that track record of excellence, as Jackie puts it. But also, they want to make sure that they're product-minded individuals. When you're product-minded, you have a customer focus. You're always thinking about how will this impact your customer. Um, you have good product sense. So you have a good sense of like what's a good design and what's a bad design. And you also, you approach the world like a PM, so you're always asking yourself, what's the goal here? And then once you ask the question, you'll actually decide on the goals. And then you'll use those goals to drive hard trade-offs and solutions. And once you've had some product experience, it's certainly a lot easier, at least to be considered for product roles. I'd imagine it would be. I, I mean, I'm sure it's still hard, but once you're in, now you're a product person, at least in the eyes of other companies. Yes. And Jackie has some advice specifically for these folks, too. Once somebody has PM experience, then, then you've got enough to get on the radar of other companies to, to get the PM job. And in that world, I see that referrals and personal connections matter a lot. So at both big companies and small companies, if you get your resume submitted via referral, it will help you get noticed and it'll give you a bigger chance of getting an interview. Um, it's still worth it to apply you know, to their job's email address or on their job's page. But if you can be brave and reach out to someone you admire at that company um, or meet people at meetups, send cold emails, uh, any of these ways to actually get in touch with someone who's really there. You can reach out to your alumni network from your school sometimes also to, to get connection. Um, any, any of those approaches to actually talk to someone um, in person before you apply can make a really big difference in getting your foot in the door. You want to be really personalized about it. So you don't want to just spam everybody you know with a generic message. Um, but it, I get those all the time and I kind of like, I just kind of read them and keep moving. They, they if anything, they sometimes irritate me more than make me really like want to support that person. But when somebody reaches out to me and they're they're talking about you know something I've written in the past or something about Asana in particular, or we have a friend of a friend who connects us. A lot of the time then I'm like very excited to talk to them when it seems like they um, they actually want to work at your company or they actually want to meet you as opposed to you're one of a thousand letters that they're going to be sending out that day. And then I would also say that it depends on the company. Some companies read cover letters and others don't. Um, and for the ones that do, it can make a big difference. Um, having a cover letter can really make you stand out, can, uh, can make people notice you and, and pull you out as somebody who might be worth taking a chance on. So in cover letters, um, you can explain why you're a good match for the company and emphasize the things that are less obvious from your resume. So this happened a lot when I was looking at um, APM candidates. We saw lots of people who have sort of an engineering background. And if I saw someone with an engineering background, I would read the cover letter to see are they, do they seem to be product minded? Do they seem like they have excellent communication? And if so, then I'll be really excited about them. And then at the same time, I might also see some people who clearly have a, a strong customer facing background. They've worked directly with customers. And so I'll look to see from their resume if they have the, uh, like if they've worked in technology or if they've been a self-starter, if they have that like um, 
the history of excellent execution. So no matter if you're coming right out of college or you're an experienced product person, when you're preparing for that interview, I'm sure there are some things that people should keep in mind. Yes. Jackie talks about the skills that you should have, not necessarily as a product person, but as someone interviewing for a product role. Here's Jackie with more on this. There's one set of skills, which is just the communication skills. Um, and that's, that's like a really basic level that any interviewer can practice to become, to look much better in an interview. So an example of this is to say, no matter what the question is, say, all right, I'm going to look at this in three ways. Way number one is, and after you say that, then you can actually figure out what way one, two, and three are, but just setting up this idea that like, you're going to always start with three of them. Um, it's, it's sort of a small version of something I call signposting. So it's just like, it's talking as if though you're, you're reading off bullet points. It's giving each bullet point a name and they can refer back to them. Little things like that um, make you much more mature and more experienced as a PM. Um, and then the other way to prepare is to actually like think about the question. So one thing that the book does have is it talks about the different kinds of questions you're going to get and, and can talk a little bit about what kind of signal um, the interviewer is usually looking for in those questions. So on a product question, the interviewer is really looking at, are you thinking about goals? Are you coming up with a creative brainstorm of solutions? Are your solutions, are you then matching those solutions against the goals, thinking about um, trade-offs, thinking about the risks and thinking about, you know, how successful they'll be. Whereas with an analytical question, they're looking at like, do you have like the raw numerical smarts to take a complicated question, break it down, make progress and come to an answer that you're going to deliver? Um, and there'll be obviously different nuances there. Um, and there will be some things that might actually just be different from company to company. So like one thing I was thinking is that depending on on the specific question, sometimes you're really looking for the candidate to be decisive and confident. Um, so for example, if they're, uh, if you're asking them, like, what would you do? They should, they should work through the steps, but then they should be like, all right, here's what I think the answer is. And if they're, if they're too unsure of themselves, that's not very good. But on the other hand, you often want the candidate to be candidate to be humble and curious. So if you say, Hey, why didn't you do it this other way? You don't want them to totally uh, change their mind and be like, oh, okay, you challenged me. Let me switch over to your way. But you also don't want them to like dig their heels in and say, I'm not going to listen to anything you say. I'm sure I'm right. Um, that wouldn't be too good either. What about things like resumes, cover letters, you know, the whole old school approach? Uh, because product management role, it, it's more recent. Do these things not matter as much? You actually might be surprised. I mean, I was. Those things, they might be a part of that old school toolkit, but for some, they're actually still really, really important. I think resumes are still important. There's a lot of real nice highlights that can help somebody choose your resume out of a pile. So if you went to a great school, if you've gotten great grades, if you have worked for a great company, if you have been a founder somewhere or a maker of some kind, these kinds of things can really stand out. Your resume is a deliverable. If you think about it compared to the product management work we do to like a spec, think about what, what kind of communication style will be most appropriate and most user-friendly for people reading the resume. That can really help your resume stand out. Um, so one thing I see is I see people who have worked at less common companies and I, in that time, if I haven't heard of the company, I'm always looking to see how do they explain it? Are they able to give me a quick explanation of what the company does and why it matters? And am I able to get a sense of like what they really accomplished 
Um, I know that there was a lot of the, the, the resume advice that I saw when I was an undergraduate trying to apply to schools. And, and I think that it was sort of very far off from what, what you really want for at least a PM resume. It was like, tell me what action verbs you did in, you know, what team, what like team names. And so I was like, wrote specs. And that's like, that's, you know, that's not, that doesn't make sense to put on a resume. Uh, you really want to talk about the results that you achieved. You want to talk about why they matter. The results you've achieved, why those results actually matter. It's interesting because it's not really just about having a resume and a cover letter, but almost treating those things like a product or at least as a product marketing tool. So you're the product, but these artifacts have to explain the features and benefits of, well, you pretty clearly. I think that's actually a great way to think about it. And Jackie was starting to get into mistakes, common traps, things that we should avoid when we're going through that interview process. Yes. And well, she has some more to share right here. Scattered communication style. If you just go on a rambling train of thought, uh, monologue, that's, that's not going to look really great. But if you find ways to punctuate your, your, interview and to organize it, um, signpost, things like that, you can make it a lot easier for the uh, interviewer to follow what you're saying. That will really help. Um, some other really easy mistakes is people who are jargony, people who use lots of acronyms, they use words that you're, the people who are interviewing you might not be familiar with. Um, sometimes even if you're using words that they might know, if you just assume they know and you're not, you're not careful about it, it can make the interviewers worry that you wouldn't be as strong at communicating to non-technical people. Um, another big mistake I've, I've seen is people who are rude. And this happens more than you might imagine. And there's, there's a lot of varieties of it. So people are rude to the recruiters. And I, I always t tell our recruiters that it's really that our candidates treat them politely. And if they're not being treated politely, I'd like to know because I don't want to hire someone who's not polite to recruiters. Another way I've seen this is um, people who criticize the interview question. Um, there are people who will just sort of uh, refuse to answer the question or, or get very nitpicky about the details of the question. And, um, and I'm sure that they believe that they're right, that the question wasn't the perfectly most best formed question. But um, part of being a PM is, is understanding trade-offs and understanding that things won't always be perfect and being able to still move forward and make progress even when you're in an ideal situation. Um, and another way that I've seen this is also people who are, try to kind of be show-offs in their questions. Um, sometimes when I say, do you have any questions for me at the end, people will be like, yeah, why didn't you do this, 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 and this in your product? And I've, I've had times when people ask me and it sounds like a genuine question and that's, that's all right. But a lot of the time it, it sounds like they're trying to like prove that they're smart and it, it feels rude. It doesn't, it doesn't feel um, super polite. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Now back to the show. So product people, if you're in the interview process, just, yeah, don't do those things. No, please don't. <laughs> Well, <laughs> that was an awesome chat and incredibly timely as we head into the end of the year where, you know, we all might be thinking about our own futures. Yes. And on that note, if you all have feedback for us on the future of Rocket Ship, whether it's ideas for future episodes, people you'd like to see interviewed, entire future seasons, let us know. You could just email us at team at rocketship.fm. Again, team at rocketship.fm. Just give us a shout. 
Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, the community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.